This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Dave Green and Happy New Year, Dave. Uh, Happy New Year, Bob. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yes, indeed. The years just keep piling up, which is probably a good thing in the historian's business. You you want to have time go by. <laughs> that is true. It produces more material. It does. And speaking of material, I'm going to start off our uh, chit-chat uh, today, our first of the new year, uh, bringing up a name of a man who's been on the program. He's actually been generous with our GoFundMe campaign as well. Uh, history professor Bruce Deerstein. Uh, Bruce has an article on the New York History blog about an exhibit at the Albany Institute of History and Art. It's uh, right there on Washington Avenue in Albany. Great to museum. Been been there over the years to see different exhibits. And their current exhibit, Capital Region in 50 Objects. And they use a quote from Henry Ford, every object tells a story if you know how to read it. And there are 50 objects in this uh, particular exhibit, which they did in cooperation with a whole bunch of people, including the Albany Times Union. And here's one that's a very interesting one. And I know just a little bit <clears throat> about this gentleman. Um, in fact, what I really know is what I'm reading in uh, Bruce's blog. They have the coat worn by Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, a Mechanicville native who was the first Union officer to die in the Civil War, April 1861. Um, the coat has the hole from the bullet that killed Ellsworth. So I guess that that's the deal. Every object tells a story. That one certainly does. Yeah. Also, there are illustrations of the Capital District's industry history, a cast iron stove made in Green Island, I don't know if they made stoves in Green Island, <clears throat> but they made things in practically every city around here. One thing I did know they made, Arrow Company shirt collars made in Troy. In fact, Troy's been called the collar city, right? That, the- that, that, is, uh, that is true. Matter of fact, uh, let's see, sometime around uh, Christmas season last year, now that we're into the new year, family members did take a tour over on, is it the Cluett House? Yeah, I think so. The Cluett Mansion. The Cluett Mansion. Yeah, it's all de- it was decorated for the holiday season, you know, decorated to the nines, as they say. I, I bet it was. And from Schenectady, one of the objects at the museum is a GE refrigerator from 1930. My father always told the story. He started his working life at GE, and supposedly he made refrigerators. And he probably would have stayed there, except he got laid off during the Depression, and then uh, found his uh, final job in the Amsterdam uh, carpet mills. But they used to make these refrigerators. I don't know if this is the one they have there. They called them monitor tops. Have you ever heard that with the, about a refrigerator? You mean with that great big thing on the top of it you often see in the 1930 films? Yep, that's I'm okay. sure they're in demand today as an antique item. I bet. And also in terms of industry, there's a. this is something that will speak directly to you, Dave. In fact, maybe you've owned this uh, company's products. They have a Troy-built rototiller from the early 1980s. I just sold one of my Troy-built rototillers a couple of weeks ago because, as you know, over the years I participated in the garden business. And one, one step back, it was just a couple of weeks back that General Electric announced that their Pending sale of the appliance division, at least for now, is on hold or it's fallen through. And I forget 
who they were going to sell it to. Right? Black and Decker, I don't I have any idea. Somebody or other. Somebody or other. Yeah, but Troy Bilt was a popular and uh, proud name. Still, in, well, remain, yeah. remains that uh, remains that way uh, for yeah. sure. They, 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 they made a machine that pretty much ran itself. Really? Yeah, it was. It's it's kind. Of, I mean, this isn't what we're talking about, but because of the garden business and right. my experience with it, because of the rear tines. Now, those who like gardening will associate with this. Perhaps not you. I understand, but I understand, yeah. yeah, if you like the gardening, the, because of the rear tines, most rototillers were had the tines on the front that actually tore up the earth. You could set it down in soft soil, and it would pretty. You could let it go. It would move by itself. (laughs) So much for that. Man, there you go. And now, and two more objects from this uh, exhibit at the Albany Institute. I like this stuff. Keep up here, Bob. Well, we have two more from the Albany Institute of History and uh, Art. They have the desk used by Erastus Corning, who was the longest tenured mayor in Albany history and maybe in the country. He was mayor from 1942 to 1983. And can you imagine all the deals that were made over that desk? I was going to say, if that desk could talk. Indeed. And uh, they also got an object that, in a sense, did speak to us. They've got the typewriter used by author William Kennedy for one of his first novels, his 1969 novel, The Ink Truck. Uh, He went on to write uh, Iron... Uh, weed and other uh, uh, books, of course, and that won the Pulitzer Prize. But that was his typewriter. They've got it on display. I've only got little smidgens of relationships here to what you're talking about. When they took his book Iron Weed, and of course they produced the movie in the city of Albany, yes, back in 1986 with Jack Nicholson. I do have somewhere in the collection of junk around here a jar of uh, soil, dirt. That my wife picked because she went down to watch the filming of the trolley scene that's included in the movie, right. and and that I believe the lower section of Lark Street, they you know they turned the whole street back to the look of the night at the turn of the century. They had to spread dirt over the entire section where the camera would would be used. And they laid the tracks and all this, so we little collector's item from the movie. I imagine. Uh, and also, speaking of Albany, this takes us really far afield, and I don't have the... All right, let's my, go for it. I don't have the answer to this as to where it is, but I, uh, because of my other little job that I have interviewing the mayor of Albany, Kathy Sheehan, I'm, I really diligently read the Times Union every day, and their columnist now, or their kind of lead columnist, is a a guy named Chris Churchill. And uh, Chris Churchill did a column about good things in Albany. And he said that Albany has the best macaroni and cheese, he thinks, in the country. Oh, this is a lead question, Bob. (laughs) If we were in court, this is a lead question, ladies and gentlemen. Explain. You're going to explain why? Well, 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 yes, because we recently had our last uh, holiday season. Audrey uh, and I had our annual party, and Audrey always makes mac and cheese, which you have dubbed the best mac and cheese in the country. It is referred to as the A&B party, Audrey and Bob, usually around the beginning of December every year. And the reply was M&C, the best M&C can be found at the A&B party. I, I... Without exaggeration, Bob, I've been on a diet for about seven months and successful at it until I got to your party. Until that mac and cheese. And then somebody said, because I was saying, 
where's the macaroni? They said, it's over there. It got kind of pushed over into the corner in a great big crock pot. I hit that thing. But I, I think people, there were several people talking that tuned them completely out. Yeah, that's the way to be. Yeah, it was great stuff. But unfortunately, I don't remember what where it is that Chris Churchill gets the best mac and cheese. Oh, some, all right, back to the city of Albany. Don't know. Yeah, don't know. So maybe somebody will email us, and let me. Maybe you, I you want to stop and in. talk about mac and cheese again for a little long? I begin to ask you for all the ingredients. What is a multi-cheese mac and cheese? Honestly, I don't know. You this don't is know. Audrey's secret. You don't. You don't cook, and you I don't think, garden. And here's the funny thing: she doesn't care for mac and cheese. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's a case of I'm going to dump the kitchen sink in this thing. <laughs> that's right. It's not her face. She doesn't have it at all. I enjoy it, but uh, she doesn't uh, care much for it. Thank you, Audrey. You, you betcha. You're welcome. Now, uh, on to uh, another story. I want to. I said to you when we were setting this up that just like they used to do on the Bullwinkle show, we're going to set the Wayback Machine to the year 1947. 1947. Okay. okay. How exactly would just a tweak here and a tweak there, and yep. it's set. Okay. All yeah. right. Now, I was two years old. You were a little younger. I think maybe you just. 1947? Yeah. Yeah, it was about six months. Okay. I was uh, two years old. At the end of the year. But anyway, 1947, I did a recent column for the Daily Gazette, uh, which is called Focus on History, about a couple of topics from 47, but the headline had to do with something called carpet-laying school. Carpet-laying school. Mohawk Carpet Mills, which was one of the two big uh, carpet manufacturers in Amsterdam, Mohawk Carpet Mills started what may have been the industry's first carpet-laying school in 1947. So, sounds to me like an early version of BOCES. It <laughs> could have been. Uh, during World War II, you see, a Mohawk, I, I, I'm a little foggy on this, I think they still made carpets, but they really turned their manufacturing um, plant to the war effort, as so many uh, companies did. So Mohawk, instead of making a lot of carpets anyway during World War II, was weaving blankets and canvas and other products, you know, completely unrelated to textiles for the war effort, for example, in their ma machine shops and manufacturing rugs took a back seat. But this is 1947, the war is over, and the company is now pushing the latest thing in carpeting, which is, in 1947, wall-to-wall. -wall. So they wanted to sell wall-to-wall -wall carpeting in place of what they called the 9 by 12 rug. Who knew? And who knew? Uh, and this is according to the company magazine they used to put out in Amsterdam called Tomohawk, one of many politically incorrect <laughs> things that uh, Mohawk Carpets used to do All to right. capitalize on its Native American name. Mm -hmm. The man who directed Carpet School, and apparently he directed Carpet other, School. Yeah. <laughs> this is getting uh, even better. <laughs> Yeah, he directed other educational efforts as well. But he's described in the in the article as carpet school director. I wonder and, if they were. I wonder if people who installed the carpeting or however they went about were as much in a bad mood as the the last guy I had installed some wall to wall carpeting about fifteen years ago. Well, it can be tricky, Dave. It's it can, can be. Yeah, you it's spend touchy. the entire day crawling around. Who you know? Who needs this? Well, the carpet school director was John Pollard, and Mr. Pollard said. Proper installation would make wall-to-wall -wall carpet look, quote, as though it were poured into the room, unquote. Nice. 
Yeah. Wait, I'll bet that was great carpet. Yeah, I'll bet there's homes where that stuff still, you know, you probably could not wear it out. Well, sometimes, yeah, it was a long-wearing carpet, or many of them were. And the technique to lay the carpet was the Roberts Smooth Edge Method, invented <laughs> by a man named Roy Roberts from Georgia, who in 1938 had founded a company that manufactured floor-covering tools, kind of a specialized uh, little firm there. And using his method, and I hope this, you know, it comes across, I think I know what I'm talking about or what I took from the magazine, but the Roberts method was to take a narrow wooden tack strip, a little narrow piece of wood that had needle-like spikes, and you laid that down the outer contour or the wall of the room. I think you actually had to tack the tack strip in place, if that makes any sense. Then you secured the carpet to that strip, and you stretched it to fit along on another tack strip on the opposite side of the room. Those spikes, you know, hold the carpet in place. They still do it that way to this very day, Bob. Yes, that's how they do it. That's how it's done. I don't think there's been any improvement. No, there wouldn't there wouldn't be any reason for it. You still need to crawl around on your hands and knees, but oh, you do. the process yeah. hasn't changed. But when they did carpet school back in 1947, a Mohawk carpet had, quote-unquote, authorized dealers. You know, they probably still do. You know, Well, anyway, dealers around the country sent their technicians for a two-week course in Amsterdam. So it was a little couple of weeks up in upstate New York for these guys. And there was a photo in the magazine of 20 of the students, 20 men in white coats lined up behind four long benches, apparently doing one of the, the lessons of carpet school. And according to the caption, these students, these carpet laying technicians, had come from the state of Washington, Utah, Tennessee, Virginia, and the Carolinas. They came for a two-week course. They started out learning about carpet construction, studying different kinds of weaves. Each of them received a set of tools. Instruction was provided on measuring and estimating techniques, along with blueprint reading. Hold on, Bob. The white coats were in the uh, the white coats were for, they were for effect. <laughs> Probably. I mean, so. this this we're not talking heart surgery. No, I know. We're talking <laughs> carpet laying. Yes. Good the, promotional uh, tool. All right. The students were taught how to overcome obstacles such as doorways, heat registers, radiators, connecting rooms, and stairways. <laughs> it's a little more complicated than you think. They spent the last four days of the course actually installing carpets in model rooms, quote, attractively and realistically decorated in delicate pastels, unquote. So they must have built rooms for this purpose up in uh, up in Amsterdam. And the magazine Tomahawk wrote, quote, superior craftsmanship and materials, hallmarks of Mohawk tradition, are worthless without proper carpet installation. I get it. Oh, yeah. I get it. Uh, and, nope. and, and, and like all other things, you know, master of, you know, you know, Master of none, as they say, or, yes. uh, you know, master of one. Anyway, uh, the, the point being that if you were good at it, you were good at it. Indeed. I knew one gentleman who it was 
very good at it. A man uh, named Don McVeigh, been a lifelong friend of our family, and he he worked for Mohawk, and he also ended up, you know, putting in carpet. And I know at our house he took out carpet, which is a, a skill in and of itself. You know, you know you're you're bringing a thought to mind here that uh, never made the connection. I have family had family members in uh, in New Jersey who uh, one of my best uncles, as they say, owned a carpet store. For okay. years and years, he used to work for Macy's as mm-hmm. the carpet buyer down through the Southland, then started his own business. And I am sure he must have dealt with these products you're talking about from, from Amsterdam. But the way he would uh, gather his business together, which was a smart move, had nothing to do with you know what we're talking about, of source. But he would install all the carpets in all the local churches. Ah, very good. And then he would just, oh, this is, oh, you know, oh, this, this is beautiful. This well, is yeah, beautiful. I got to have this. Let's get Dave's uncle put, to do it. Put this. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, another connection. Well, are we still we're still in the wayback machine here. Aren't we, we are in the yeah. wayback. But just uh, another aside. We got we're full of asides today, Dave. Uh, in terms of the carpet business, uh, a gentleman who's I would say is a very well known television personality in the Capital District, Mr. Scott Sauer who you see on public television all the time during the fun drives, you know, when they do a show. All right. He's, he's the man who's, uh, and he frequently interviews people like Peter Yarrow and Arlo Guthrie and so on and so forth. But I remember talking to Scott over the years, before he went into television, he worked for, the. I, I want to say, he worked for Mohawk Carpet or its successor uh, company that uh, after Mohawk left Amsterdam. So he's always been very interested in the carpet business. And they began to fade the carpet business out of uh, Amsterdam. What was it, the mid-50s? Yeah, not, well, two events, really. There were two main companies. 1955, one of them just moved out of town completely. That's that right. was Bigelow Sanford. But then the other one, Mohawk, uh, stayed Emerged with another firm, had a little bit of a growth spurt after 1955, but ultimately uh, sloughed off the manufacturing to the south. And now it's been another step. The, the manufacturing's moved offshore. So those places in the south where they did manufacture the carpets, in large part, they aren't doing it anymore. Which of the two companies was the more successful? Gee, that's hard to say. I wouldn't know. I mean, I'm I'm a partisan of Mohawk because that's where my father worked. I probably know the most about a uh, Mohawk. But uh, Bigelow Sanford was also very big, as they say. Another irony is that today there's basically one company that owns both brands. No, I think you know, they market probably them as, Walmart. Yeah, no, I don't know, but it's. <laughs> yeah, I think it might be called Mohawk Enterprises or something like that. So around 1950, how many people were employed totally? I, I don't know, but it was thousands. Thousands of, of people. Uh, maybe five, ten thousand people each. Uh, mill probably employed three or four thousand people. Right. Uh, each of the the two big companies. They didn't I all do- wear white jackets. No, no, they didn't. Just no, in fact, in fact, uh, in you know, marketing, if you will, my new book, because I have a big section on the carpet industry. What it, one of the things that interested me about how the factory workers, like my father, who was a weaver, uh, dressed, was they didn't wear like, like what we regard as work clothes. You know, jeans and sneakers and boots and hard hats and stuff. They didn't it wear was, three-piece suits, did they? No, they didn't. But it was kind of like they wore last year's regular clothes, you know what I mean? Like it was like an old shirt. Like my father typically wear a long sleeve cotton shirt and 
uh, a pair of old dress pants, and he like he on uh, his job he wore leather shoes. You know, he didn't uh, you know wear like sneakers or any kind of special footwear. It was not very um, you know they maybe they're a little drab, but it, it wasn't like. The you know, the uh, kind of uniform of uh, construction workers, let's say today. Always, always for some reason respect people. The older gentlemen you still see around from time to time. You know, you you can tell you would never fi- never find them wearing sneakers. Yeah, you know right. they they've got their leather shoes on, and you know that's the way it is every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't. Right. I don't think I ever saw my father wear sneakers. That's it. That's it. No way. I tell you, I, I'll ask you. Know, in a, Dad, you're in your sneakers today. You've gone yeah. berserk. Yeah. No, in later years, I think when he was in the nursing home, he did All right. have sneakers. But, um, yeah, it was always those leather shoes. I had one other story about the carpet laying school. One of the students had a little profile of him in the company magazine because he had traveled from Norfolk, Virginia to Amsterdam to attend a carpet school, and he traveled by motor scooter. And he told the uh, magazine the 18-hour trip cost him $2.05 for gas and oil. When it rained, said the man, identified as Albert Rose, he said, I stopped for a quart of oil and a gallon of beer. <laughs> and, 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 and probably paused a second or two to find out if he wanted to change his mind about the trip. Indeed. Well, I still have more from the Wayback Machine in 1947. All right, let's also, keep going. It also has to do with the uh, carpet mill. And this is something I remember very well, which was the mill shutdown. Uh, we were talking about the final shutdowns of the mill, of the mills in Amsterdam. But uh, when I was a kid, I remember the mill had a shutdown every year, it closed for a week. And that's when my father took vacation. So in the 1947 magazine, they talk about it was a, an edition of the magazine that came out in early June, and they talked about how in 1947, the yearly shutdown was coming June 30th to July 7th. I must say the magazine maybe uh, put in a little, I don't know if it was a dig at the union or the workers or whatever, but it did note that vacation was a relatively modern concept for factory workers. To prove the point, the magazine quoted from an 1847 contract for an indentured carpentry apprentice who far from getting a scheduled week off had to agree not to gamble and to avoid frequenting taverns or the theater <laughs> to keep his job. <laughs> but let me ask you this, we'll have the, uh, the thought, at that time were they providing health insurance? Um, I believe if not then they were soon you know i mean i think that was being developed you know after world war ii i remember my father did have health insurance as i recall but you know that was when i was 10 or 11 had my appendix out somebody paid for it (laughs) i don't think it was my parents exactly (laughs) well there's an entire podcast as to the history of how employers and health insurance became locked as one against the other wasn't it originally offered as a benefit during the war that could have been, and and originally it was not seen as a great burden, you know, by the companies. But then as time went on, <laughs> it got more and more expensive. That, that changed. It changed. But back to the uh, the mill shutdown, uh, which was taking place in 1947. I'm not clear on whether that was the first shutdown since the war started. But during they did make reference to the fact that during the war, th- there wasn't uh, time for many vacations. 
because, you know, there was a war. And as I mentioned at the start of this little piece, uh, the, it wasn't that, you know, were, the war effort needed carpet, but they, the Mohawk was making a canvas for tents and to cover guns on Navy ships and other things. So they sort of worked nonstop during the war years. But by 47, there were, you know, it was time to uh, take some time off. In fact, the this uh, company magazine uh, had a guest column by the recorder newspaper sports editor, Johnny Page, who, who wrote this. With war throttled vacations, a thing of the past, there's no excuse this year for Amsterdam's vacation-bound citizens not to have a good time either at home or away. Then Johnny Page listed some of the things you could do during the shutdown in terms of sports. He said there was plenty of local baseball to watch, the local minor league team, the Amsterdam Rugmakers, a farm team for the New York Yankees, were at home for that week to play Rome and then would have a five-game series with the nearby arch-rival, the Schenectady Blue Jays, where Tommy Lasorda was a pitcher. I don't know if he was in 47, but he was a, a pitcher there at that, uh, at that time. The Blue Jays survived for a number of years, did they not? Yes. I mean, they were very, well, right. I, I'm not exactly sure how long. I have, uh, the rug makers lasted into the mid-50s, I would say, or, uh, or early mid-50s. I remember my uh, late uh, friend and my first boss, Phil Spencer, who ran a WCSS in Amsterdam then and was a great sports fan. Uh, you know, and it's an, maybe an obvious point. He said what killed minor league baseball was television because you could see the Yankees on TV. All right. And, you know, you weren't maybe that interested in going to see the little Yankees or the rug makers up, up to Mohawk Mills Park. Oh, a little bit. I was humming that song the other day, Video Killed the Radio Stars. <laughs> something like that. Was something. Well, we have one more uh, section uh, from the Wayback Machine. And this looks, Dave, like we may be the only thing we'll get to is the Wayback Machine. Is there was another section of Tomahawk, which I thought was quite interesting, a picture feature with six mill workers at Mohawk Carpet Mills in Amsterdam naming their favorite big bands. 1947, right. still the big band era. A uh, young woman, I must say, rather attractive young woman. Uh, Iris Lees was a Glenn Miller fan. And I noticed she put it in the past tense. I guess it didn't immediately dawn on me, but of course, Glenn Miller had died. You know, he was killed during World War II in a, in a plane crash. So she spoke of him in the past tense. Uh, James Drouse liked Carmen Cavallero. All I basically know is the name. I know that there was a band. I, rem I remember. Yeah, I presume it was Latin. And Carmen Cavallero and his... I don't remember that part. A man named Joseph Zucchi of Hageman put in a vote for Guy Lombardo. Dorothy Albright's pick was... Vaughn Monroe, the singer, uh, who also had a band, apparently. And Frank Mancini, he favored Benny Goodman. But the woman that sent me to uh, Google to, to look it up was a, a woman uh, who was asked what's her favorite big band, Marie Saltzman, and she says she liked the Corn Cobblers, spelled with K's, you know, K-O-R-N, mm -hmm. K-O-B-B-L-E-R-S. Local band? No, she said they played at Jack Dempsey's restaurant in New York City. And her quote was, every time I go down there, I must go and see them. I like the way they dress with their farm hats, turned up overalls, 
overalls. They're real comedians. So, and I looked them up, and, and they were, you know, a country band, but they played it sort of like Spike Jones for laughs. Mm-hmm. You know, they did a lot of, I guess, goofy stuff. And they were indeed known for playing at Jack Dempsey's restaurant, which was uh, big in New York City. I wonder if they were ever featured in any of the very early Roy Rogers movies, not the TV show, or maybe even the TV show. You know, Could was, be. Was... I don't know. They, uh, I mean, I think they were popular, but obviously they you know, kind of faded from view. I mean, we know Guy Lombardo's name better than the Corn Cobblers. Yes. The other thing I think is interesting, and we're almost out of time, is it sort of reinforces that Amsterdam people back then they did go to new york city a fair amount you know that was i remember that growing up i know my aunts and even my folks would you know go down to new york city to go to a show or go to entertainment of some kind probably a little cheaper at the time well well relatively speaking it was still kind of expensive but dave we're just about out of time for the historians podcast once again i wish you a happy new year dave and the same to you bob the Historians podcast were online and also on Rise, the radio service for the blind and print disabled of WMHT Educational Communications.